from Spam 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 Humbug. I'm Kenneth Cooley, better known as WTF Dragon, and this is a complete reading of Andrea Cantato's Through the Moongate. Chapter 10, Ultima 2, Revenge of the Enchantress. For Ultima 2, Richard said, Well, I should learn 6502 assembly language like Ken and make a better game. And he did. His first assembly language program happened to be a big hit game, you know, unlike most people's first one. Dr. Cat. Interview with Matt Barton, Matt Chat, 2017. Ultima 2 is unique and its storyline is original. That's why I like it. David Langendon. Review of Ultima 2, K Power Magazine. 1984. The stranger from another world had restored peace to the land of Caesarea, but the truce did not last long. Having defeated Mondane, the stranger returned to his world, unaware of the sorcerer's young apprentice and lover, Minax. She swore revenge on those who had deprived her of her companion and mentor. Her thirst for blood was not satisfied with spreading death and destruction in the form of wild beasts and ferocious monsters especially once she discovered that the hero who had put an end to the immortal existence of Mondain was no inhabitant of Caesarea. Following his trail, she reached the world from which the stranger had come, Earth, and enacted a diabolical plan. She began traveling through time, sowing hatred and resentment between nations, and in 2111 managed to trigger a nuclear war that devastated the planet, breaking the continents into fragments and reducing humanity to ashes. Only a handful of humans managed to survive the apocalypse, thanks to the use of space-time portals. These founded Pirate's Harbor, the only city left after the devastation. Once again, the fate of an entire world was in the hands of the Stranger. Summoned by Lord British, the player's mission in Ultima 2 was to visit Earth at various periods in history, this via time portals, to find objects needed to stop Minax's plan. Having obtained these necessary tools to defeat the sorceress, the player had to penetrate Castle Shadowguard, her stronghold and fortress, and face her in a showdown. After defeating the sorceress, the evil influence on humanity's fate immediately ended, retroactively changing the course of history and avoiding the thermonuclear war. As in the two previous games, Ultima 2's plot was mostly told by its manual. Over the course of the game, there were few references to the story, and Lord British was little more than an NPC equipped with a certain degree of invulnerability and the special power to heal, as long as the player had at least 50 gold coins. It made little sense to return to the future to be thanked by Lord British for this accomplishment because of the time paradox that would have made everyone forget about the stranger and the evil deeds of Minax. The issue was not ignored by the manual. And if, no, when, you succeed, you will return to the present as it might have and should have been. Those in this small group can guarantee from their very souls that they will never forget your great deed. But you should be aware that by the very nature of your success, that future generations, prospering in the sunlit glory of the universe as you have made, are apt to forget. Your satisfaction must be self-sufficient. Nevertheless, the plot of Ultima 2 was very sketchy in its outlines, similar to that of Ultima. It was told to the player, again, via a short introduction in the manual, and a few references in the game. Richard was mainly looking for a way to use the map that he had created inspired by Time Bandits. When he was a DM for Dungeons & Dragons sessions, he focused on creating challenges for his players, confronting them with complex tasks and battles. The plots of his adventures, by his own admission, had never been particularly strong. As a game developer, Richard was still a DM, or saw himself as such, for whom the plot and character development were not a priority, at least for now. 
Despite its long development time, Ultima 2 was not much different from its predecessor. Except for small aesthetic changes to improve the interface, it was very similar to Ultima. Character creation was similar in terms of its interface and the choices possible for sex, race, and class. Though it did boast a new engine, the game did little to distinguish itself from Ultima and didn't appear to be anything more than a slight enhancement. The adventure in Ultima 2 started in 1423 BC on Earth with a stylized representation taking some liberties for the sake of gameplay. The player would start in North America, for example, and could easily enter Asia over a land bridge. Simply exploring the world or using the fabric map that was included with the game for orientation, the player could access all of the different time portals and move through different epochs on Earth. The control system of the game, with hotkeys, remained unchanged, and the tile set was very similar to that of Ultima, with the exception of a few new monsters in the overworld. One of the first things players were likely to notice that was different was the cities. Unlike in Ultima, where the cities were shown on a single screen, in Ultima 2 they were much larger and more detailed. To overcome the limits of the rudimentary graphics permitted by the game engine, Richard created tiles with letters to write on the walls of the cities to give directions to the players. This way, for example, the inn at Port Boniface in the land of 1990 indicated that there was also a business called Ronald McDonald, a clear reference to a notable fast food chain. Popular culture and real-life references were numerous. From the video game industry, Andrew Greenberg and Robert Woodhead were depicted in a magic shop called, of course, Wizardry. To movies, Commander Decker of Star Trek The Motion Picture notably turns up. But the main plot was made up of protagonists from Garriott's own life, the family and friends who had supported him during the creation of the game. For example, the player would meet characters inspired by Richard's parents, as well as Mayer, the owner of the Computerland store. In Ultima, there were only Yolo, Gwino, and Richard's two alter egos, Lord British and Shamino. With Revenge of the Enchantress, this would become a trademark of all of Richard Garriott's future games, inserting many characters from his life and creating a virtual world full of inside jokes, strongly inspired by his personal experiences. Cities became more than simple trading hubs and were now inhabited by characters with names and dialogues. It had become a necessity for the player to explore their surroundings and talk to people apart from guards and traders, to gather information. Richard had gone from representing cities with a simple text screen for buying and selling equipment and food, to drawing landscapes and populating them with guards and characters with a name and a trade, modeling a world. The improved engine of Ultima 2 made itself felt mostly when visiting its dungeons. The technological evolution was quite obvious there, as these were now handcrafted rather than randomly generated. The new engine had been written in a fast assembly language and allowed for much more fluid experience, as well as displaying monsters in color. However, due to time constraints and the greater amount of attention paid to the development of the overworld's numerous maps, the dungeons fell short on player expectations and had a somewhat limited bestiary. That said, the dungeons contained even more hidden jokes. Players drawing maps would recognize hidden graffiti such as Lord Brit, Ultima 2, or Zab, the initials of Keith Zabalui, credited for the first time as a programmer on Ultima 2. In cities, Richard aligned tiles of bushes, plants, and road pavements in the shape of one of the four ghosts from Namco's Pac-Man, and also in the shape of E.T. in New Jester, a city inhabited exclusively by noisy jesters. Combat and spells remained substantially unchanged, as did the system of obtaining hit points, via exiting a dungeon or through purchase. Lacking the plethora of lords and castles from the first installment, unintentionally, the figure of Lord British turned into that of a collector, ready to ask for money at every visit and provide life points in return, albeit very sparingly. 
Completed as quickly as possible in order to meet Sierra's deadline, upon release, Ultima 2 was found to be an incomplete and buggy game. Some of the bugs were quite serious. One was called rollover and occurred when a player exceeded the limit of life points, 9,999, or attributes, 99, after buying them from Lord British. In such cases, the counter would automatically reset to zero, resulting in the instant death of the character. Lacking time to solve the issue, Richard hastily implemented a band-aid solution by decreasing the amount of HP that Lord British awarded the player. To fix Ultima 2, Richard would need more time that Ken Williams was simply unwilling to provide. Consequently, the game was published with many maps that were either almost empty or completely deserted. Richard's original design had included a space section with the possibility of visiting other planets in the solar system. Besides these empty planets, the dungeons in the game were also largely superfluous, containing no objects relevant to the main quest. Despite these numerous flaws, the game received good ratings from magazines. Soft Talk reviewed it, describing it as, quote, an interplanetary saga with a creative programming flair far beyond the scope of most fantasy or adventure games, end quote. Although the only required interplanetary journey was to Planet X. Most of the other planets found in the game were empty maps. Continuing with the tradition established by its predecessors, the game was put on sale in the summer. On August 24, 1982, the long-awaited sequel to what was to become a saga appeared on the shelves of computer stores and video game stores, accompanied by a remarkable advertising campaign. The cover, for once, did not bear the signature of Dennis Lubay, because Ken William had insisted on trusting Sierra Online's reference artist with the main work. This was Paul Stinson. At the time, Stinson worked in New York and could only be contacted by letter or via telephone to his agent. According to Stinson, I had no direct conversations with Richard Garriott regarding the game, nor did I play it. I was provided an overview of the game and a basic direction Sierra was looking for. Of course, I was given creative freedom. Even without having played Ultima 2, working only with the supplied information, Stinson was able to grasp the essence of Garriott's game. The result was a cover depicting a traveler about to enter a portal and being threatened by a dragon. The illustration continued on the back of the box with a representation of a castle with steep lines clinging to a rock spire, reachable only through a steep, winding, zigzag path. This second part of the artwork was very similar to one designed by Laura Phillips for CPCC's Ultima Manual, which Sierra later reused for the port of Ultima on the Atari 400 and 800, and for Mount Drash. Only years later, with Richard Garriott's consent, did Lubay receive the satisfaction of drawing the cover of Ultima 2 as he would have envisioned it. In addition to the fabric map that had prompted Richard to choose Sierra Online as a publisher, and that represented the network of space-time links between the portals, the game box included a 16-page manual explaining the user interface, gave some indications of gameplay, gave information on the setting and a bestiary of the monsters. In addition, a paper galactic map with coordinates, X, Y, and Z represented as Zeno, Yako, and Zabo, was included. This was needed to travel with the spaceship. Also included was a postcard to register the product, and of course, the five and a quarter inch floppy disks that it shipped on. This was a big step forward compared to the CPCC edition, which had sold for $5 less than Sierra Online's Ultima 2. In the future, Richard would focus even more on this aspect, increasing the retail price of his games several times as a result. Still, his intuition regarding the appeal of Feelys paid off and was reflected immediately in the sales numbers. These were much better than what his previous titles had achieved. 
Ultima 2 had to compete with another sequel, Wizardry 2, The Knight of Diamonds, a second act of the history-making series devised by Greenberg and Woodhead. However, this time the two did not have as much time to develop it, and the result was not as well received by all. Their riskiest choice was to follow in the footsteps of Temple of Apshai and make a game that could not be played without the first installment. However, both games continued on with unprecedented sales numbers, riding what would later be called the boom in the golden age of computer role-playing games. In truth, the growth was not driven uniquely by RPGs, but by the output of the entire video game industry. And storm clouds would soon start to form for Richard. To learn more, subscribe to Spam 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 Humbug on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash podcast or at spam 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 humbug.com. To find out more about Through the Moongate, visit thera.it. That's T H E I R A dot I T. You can also find the book on Amazon. And of course, you can learn more about the book and its author at andreacantado.com. That's A N D R E A C O N T A T O dot com. A big thank you to author Andrea Cantato for not only undertaking the effort of writing through the Moongate, but also for agreeing to allow for it to be read to you in this and following Spam 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 Humbug episodes. Tune in in a couple weeks' time for the next chapter. I'm going to make some games and I'll show them to you when I'm done.